Brooklyn. Downloads of this show are available on Potomatic.com and the Potomatic mobile app. What is Love Radio Show is sponsored by Fantasy App. Fantasy is a safe space to communicate about your fantasies and passions without fear of judgment. It is a dating app for open-minded couples and singles to experiment with your desires that don't have to be secret anymore. Okay, this is the What is Love show. Uh, I'm going to be playing a little bit of uh, the song Sound All These Years. Okay, meanwhile I have uh, Dr. Mac Gaffney and uh, Christina Kincaid. Are they in the line? Yes, we are. Oh, great, great. So, great. Welcome, welcome. So, hi, guys. Hi, hi. So, Mark Gaffney is a visionary thinker, social activist, passionate philosopher, and author of 10 books, including the award-winning Your Unique Self, the two-volume Radicala, and um, Tears, Reclaiming the Ritual. New books are now being prepared to write in collaboration with leading thinkers and activists in areas of human culture, uh, including evolutionary theory, uh, world spirituality, psychology, and entrepreneurship, error, sexuality, and public culture. In the words of uh, Esalen President Michael Murphy, uh, Gaffney is changing the game. Um, Christina Kincaid is the director of the Institute of Integral Evolutionary Tantra in New York City and is the chairperson of the and co-creator of the Outrageous Love Project. She holds an MA in Doctorate in Energy uh, Medicine from Hollis University, a graduate of the Institute of Coronogenics and the prestigious Barbara Brenner School of Healing. She's also earned a BA in Anthropology from the University of Austin, uh, University of Texas, Austin. So welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you guys. Good to be here with you. Thank you. So why don't we start off now? This is the What is Love show. Or normally the host would be Sasha Sugar, but she's unable to make it today. So I'm host. I'm guest hosting. My name is VJR Nathan. Um, usually I, I host the show, the Truth to Power show, but I'm guest hosting the What is Love show. So why don't we start off with uh, the, the primal question. What is love and how do you define it? Yo, so what is love? So love, of course, is many things, but at its core, right, we make a distinction, which is a kind of game changer between what we call ordinary love and outrageous love or evolutionary love. You know, Tagore, that great Indian mystic once said, he said, you know, real love is not mere human sentiment but the heart of existence itself. So the core of love is a kind of fifth force of reality that drives everything, right? It's not a kind of strategic, egoic move that gives me a little comfort and you know, gets the loneliness away just for a second, right? That, that's not love. That's a, an egoic game. But love at its core is the eros that actually drives all of reality drives us in every dimension of our lives, and it moves quarks to become, oh my God, atoms and atoms to become molecules and molecules, complex molecules. So it's the evolutionary force, right? It's the eros right, that drives all of reality. And when I actually get that that force in me that's driving me towards more contact and more depth right, and more wholeness and more aliveness, that's not the thing that just lives in me, but that is the evolutionary eros awakening in me. Then I've touched this quality of love that Tagore was talking about, but not mere human sentiment, 
at the heart of existence itself. How's that for a Sunday morning? Yeah, so interesting, so interesting. Yeah, and Christina, if you can give a little bit of a, a little bit of perspective you know, on that. Yeah, um, from a, um, a sort of a body perspective, what Mark was talking about, it's the aliveness, right, that it's the erotic force or the aliveness that we feel in, with, and through the body. And I know we're going to take a deeper dive, hopefully, into this aspect, but it's the, the radical aliveness, the love, intelligence, coursing, pulsing, throbbing through your your being. Yeah, so um, now you, in your book, uh, A Return to Eros, you talk a little bit about how it's the the, the erotic nature of that uh, love or how uh, the re- ultimate reality, ultimate love, or ultimate force is the compelling impulse that binds and propels the universe forward, that all molecules and planets move because of this uh, allurement, I believe is the term. So if you get down to the nitty-gritty of like how, what allurement is and how does that fit into, how does that function and the fit into this ultimate or outrageous love? Total, right? Total, BJ. So, KK, you want to take that first one? Do you want me to take it? Okay. So, VJ, so allurement is, and by the way, am I pronouncing it right, VJ? VJ, yeah. VJ, it is. Awesome. So, so VJ, the, the, what is a human being? A human being is a unique set of allurements, right? At the very core of reality right, is allurement. I mean, we talk about matter. What does matter come from? Matter is electromagnetic attraction. Electromagnetic attraction is just a scientific word we use to describe allurement, right? At the subatomic level, the entire thing is drawn by, right, allurement longing. I was just talking to Howard Bloom, and we were doing conversations together in our think tank called the Center for Integral Wisdom, and Howard's kind of a, a philosopher du jour of science today, kind of a NASA and those kind of places. And we were talking about this quality of longing, of allurement that exists in cosmos itself. I mean, take gravity. What's gravity? What's underneath gravity? Nothing. Right? Allurement. Gravity is just a word we use because we don't want to walk around talking about allurement. But allurement right, actually is right, the core quality of cosmos. I mean, why does VJ do what he does on his best day? Right? Because he's allured. He's drawn towards. And his allurement is unique. VJ has a different set. He's a different configuration of allurement than is Mark or KK. So that quality of allurement that is a quality of outrageous love, right? Outrageous love, there's a, and I'm going to pass it to you, KK Love, there, there's, a, there's a cluster of terms we use, because often, BJ, you know, one word doesn't quite get it. There's a cluster of terms, but the, the meta term might be eros, right? Mm-hmm. And underneath eros, there's different qualities of eros. There's desire, there's allurement, so there's intimacy, which are each different sub-qualities that are part of this overarching eros. So allurement that is really, really core there to get that quality of allurement, and that that quality of allurement is not local to you, doesn't live in you, right? which also means it's not your pathology, right? To clarify your allurement, you can know your identity. Good, good. So, uh, Christina, you want to get in there and say a little bit about allurement? Um, well, I think Mark just about summed it up in a, in a beautiful, beautiful way, but one of the, the, the great poets... Um, philosopher thinkers Dante says it's the love that moves the love that moves the sun and the stars is that quality of allurement and if it, it means all the way up and all the way down that 
there's attraction and and desire and a coursing sort of pulsing longing to to urge to merge. Now we just want to make sure that's not all too much for you on a on a Sunday morning, DJ. Yeah, yeah, it's good, it's good. And I was reading uh, the book Return to Eros, and it talks a lot about um, how God is part of that narrative. And speaking as someone who um, kind of I consider myself to be non-theist or approaching a Buddhist. And I was able to understand how, and I'm able to understand how, like, ultimate love and outrageous love is the, um, you know, compelling impulse that pushes everything forward, that kind of um, allows for a force to be present. But uh, I'm a little confused about how, I think, in my interpretation of God, it's a personification of that force, that reality uh, has consciousness rather than that is consciousness. So can you clarify about how God fits into this and what and how God is defined in this in this in your work or in your perspective? Total, 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 total on a Sunday morning. So yeah. here's a sentence. Here's a sentence for you, brother. Right? The God you don't believe in doesn't exist. It's a good sentence. Yeah. Right? So right? Right? Right. So we all have this image, this caricature of God. Right? I remember when I was um I was in the Hebrew school years and you know, um, you know, my mom was upset at me for something, so she's kind of running after me, and I go into the bathroom, and, you know, I lock the door, and she says, God's going to get you in there. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, whoa, that's the God you don't believe in. Yeah. Right? right? That's the God you don't believe in doesn't exist, right? The caricature God, right, right is, is, of course, the God we don't believe in. Right? So when we talk about God, right, we talk about the, the inherent, ceaseless creativity of cosmos, which is intelligent. Right? And when we say intelligent, we don't mean a Santa Claus god of the intelligent design mode who happens to be owned by a particular band of Christianity who on the side happens to be, you know, homophobic and ethnocentric. That's not the god we're talking about, right? We're talking about this ceaseless creativity of cosmos that has a quality, right, you know, which is both the infinity of power, the infinity of power that courses through reality, Right, which is also infinitely intimate, right? Which is also infinitely intelligent, and it lives as VJ, right? God's having a VJ experience. Yeah. God's having a Christina experience, and yet, and this is a larger conversation, and not quite not the topic of this book. The larger conversation is this quality of personalness, right? You know, I don't know if you've ever been in love, VJ, right? But if you have, if you remember, right, the most you know intimate personal moment between you and your beloved. Right, so that quality, that's not local to you. You can feel that that quality participates in a larger quality of cosmos, in a kind of, not just infinity, you know, infinity of intimacy right, that you're kind of tapping into. So those are, those are ways, those are the ways that the kind of God force, you know, peeks out. And the reason, and I'll pass it to KK, the reason we, we play with the word God, we don't avoid it, because it's a good word. It's not like fuck. Fucking God are important words that no other word right, kind of you know captures right. And we need to not bypass the words. We need to engage them because they're saying something to us. And then even if we want to pour new wine into the old flask, when we avoid the word entirely, we, you know we, we lose something. We want to we want to evolve the word. We want to deepen the word. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. And I, I do. I do get the sense that when you uh, use it in context, that. You're speaking about the ultimate nature of reality, merging it with the the loving force that underlies our experiences. So, yeah, but I think there's a lot of people have that still packaged with that um, loadedness of you know how 
how society or how our public narrative has been hijacked by this kind of ultra-conservative kind of, you know... Um, uh, so God got hijacked. Yeah, exactly, hijacked. exactly. And how that happened, we don't know, but totally. it's something interesting and, and to actually, think about. And I'm going to pass to the goddess here. We have now a goddess sitting right here. But, but the, uh, just one sense, and then to you, love, right? Um, and to you, love means not you, VJ, but Christina, just to be clear. Yeah. Right? But I'm, I'm an although, you know, we're just meeting, you know, who knows, right? But, um, but you know, but the, the, in all the mystical traditions, right, of the great religions, right, of the great traditions, they had a much deeper understanding of the divine. So I'll just give you one text in 10 seconds and pass to KK, KK is what we call Christina, right, is one mystical text from about 100 years ago, one of the great mystics named Cook, K-U-K, right, and he writes, right, you know, anyone who speaks of God, right, the way the religions speak of God in public is a heretic, right, in other words, right, you know, in, in other words, and he, there's a smallness, we make God small in the great religions today. We need to go back to the mystical core of all the great traditions that actually understood something and felt something of, you know, the infinity of intimacy. KK, here you go. Yeah. Um, what I'd like to add is that um, in Kabbalistic Tantra, there's a saying, in my body I envision God. And what we're talking about here is this uh, this radical aliveness, this this kind of Shiva Shakti energy that actually is becomes a bodied knowing. It's an embodied knowing of, it's not just a conceptual idea. These aren't just concepts. They're actually lived, they're lived concepts. They're lived ideas that actually are made manifest in the flesh. So I just want to keep that in in, in, in the conversation along with the, the, the gorgeous holiness of all of the concepts. So, back to you, Mark. No, so we'll go back to vision. By the way, yeah. Kabbalistic Tantra is the word that we, we coined right, to describe just one strain, mm-hmm. right? But it's part of a world strain, a kind of world Tantra. And Tantra simply means not what it means in America. It's not a, a quick way to better orgasm, although let's not knock that. Right? You know, bless that. But it's actually something deeper. Tantra is this deeper strain in world spirituality which speaks to this sense of this infinite, outrageous love, eros, animating all of reality. That's what we're talking about. And so Teki is referring to a verse, right, which is reread by what we're calling the Kabbalistic Tantra Masters, and the verse is, Mipsari Echazeh Eloah, through my body I vision God. So, so basically what we're talking about in return to eros, in one sense, and back to you, Vijay, yeah. that... When I'm doing sex, right, it's cosmic eros performed in the flesh, right? It's a cosmoerotic universe, all the way up and all the way down, that's coming alive in me. Yeah. So I think that uh, a lot of times people have this, uh, when listening to these kinds of um, verses, because I know I have some experience with uh, Tantra through the Buddhist tradition, uh, learning and, and experiencing the uh, Haruka Vajrayogini uh Union, which is similar, or seeing the the empowerments and such, which is similar to the Shiva Shakti for the for the listeners' uh, idea in, in Hinduism or in the Vedantic traditions. Um, so now, a lot of people though see that or see the um, the union of these beings, these cosmic beings, and think about you know sex as the act. You know, think about uh, you know the the specific act of sex, and 
you know, I think that what we have to clarify is that sexuality is more than just connecting to the genitals or like having experience with genitals, as you mentioned, but being able to untrap that sexuality from that so we can be able to free it to be, um, you know, experienced in, in our, in our so-called non-erotic spaces. So experience the bliss and the, and the experience of, of our eroticism or our sexuality in, in all aspects of our life. So how we are able to do that is really the question. How, how can we try to unfree our libido or our experiences to be able to experience that bliss in, in our general waking life? No, gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. I mean, let, let, let's, let's create a field of, of language, right? You know, which is always, you know, language creates reality. Wittgenstein wasn't right. You know, it wasn't wrong, excuse me, when he got the centrality of language. So what's sex and what's eros? Okay? So sex is, is a good term to use to what you're referring to, you know, correctly, I think, brother, as kind of classical the way we talk about sex, general sexuality or, you know, body to body, etc., which is gorgeous. What's the relation, though, of sex to eros? Eros is that quality of cosmos. It's a quality of reality. And I'll give you a definition of eros coming at you because I know you're not going to make it through Sunday without it. Right. Um, yeah. It's actually it changes. It changes everything. It changes economics. It changes politics. It changes you know medicine. And we're we're now applying it in our think tank to every dimension of human endeavor. So eros is right. Eros is the experience of radical aliveness, moving towards right. Always yearning towards, moving towards ever greater, ever deeper contact and ever larger whole ever larger wholeness, W-H-O-L-E-N-E-S-S. So eros, the experience of radical aliveness, moving towards ever deeper contact and ever larger holes. Now that applies, right, when you really get that definition, that applies everywhere. Right? That applies, you know, on the molecular level, that applies on the cellular level, that applies on the social level, right? that is eros. What's the relationship of sex to eros? The sexual models the erotic, doesn't exhaust the erotic. Right? The sexual becomes a model, right, for the qualities of eros. Right? Whether that's being on the inside, and again, not on the inside of your partner per se, on the inside of the experience. Right? Whether it's radical fullness of presence, whether it's participating in the yearning force of being, whether it's reaching towards greater wholeness, whether it's accessing the power of fantasy and imagination. Right? But the sexual models the erotic, doesn't exhaust the erotic. So all of a sudden, now, now we got some clarity, right? The sexual is an invitation, right, to live erotically, not just in the sexual, right, but in every dimension of life, right? And I can be in the middle of an orgasm and be non-erotic, be essentially closed down and mechanical, or I can be gardening, right, and be completely infused with eros. Good, good. Thank you, thank you. I think it's so interesting to think about how we invite the kind of passionate. That, you know, I think in, in the work and in, in my own experience, like the passion of propelling forward so that then we're constantly feeling the need to like, we're not thinking about, it, we're not analyzing, we're not being critical, you know, rather we're just, the, 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 the joy just moves us. We're moved by the spirit, I guess. So if Christina wants to chime in here. Yeah, there, there's an, an integral evolutionary tantra. We say we're meant to live fully erotic lives, but we've exiled the erotic to the sexual. And so part of what we do is we liberate that life energy. We liberate the sexual energy through deep body practices, 
deep, um, all kinds of different body practice, old traditional, you know, practices that go back thousands and thousands of years to, to modern practices. But there's, there's different techniques and there's different ways to liberate that life energy from, from, from just our, our sexual, uh, well, I'll say chakra. By the way, Integral Evolutionary Tantra, by the way, right, is a work from our sponsors, right, is, is the name of one of our organizations called the Integral Evolutionary Tantra School, and it is a, an independent organization. It's actually a, affiliated loosely with our think tank, the Center for Integral Wisdom, but IET, or Integral Evolutionary Tantra, is where people, you know, kind of do in, you know, deep dive study and embodied work, right, in these areas, and Christina actually is heads up that division of the think tank, and it's always kind of running some program or another in New York. So anyone who wants to read Return to Eros and, and come by and, and actually experience what this means, right, completely delighted and welcome always. Good, good, yeah. And it's such a great conversation we're having on Ready for Brooklyn, speaking of uh, the any word in for our sponsors. Um, uh, I just wanted to share also a, a conversation I had, uh, actual conversation I had that kind of illustrates in my mind uh, some of the different attitudes that people have towards sexuality and sex. Uh, you know, I was talking to some friends uh, over text message, and uh, we're talking about parents or parenting and our relationship with our parents. And uh, one of them says, uh, you know, the parents shouldn't talk about responsibility since, uh, and quoting, they're the ones who couldn't keep their pants on. To which the second friend responds, and again, again, a direct quote, uh, for humans to survive, we need to, we need to breed. So it's bad form to make fun of parents. To which I responded, oh, God, you guys are quite the romantics. So this seems to illustrate the kind of three perspectives uh, of a lot of people towards sex, you know, being either being negative or, or, or neutral or making it sacred. And um, kind of the view towards sex is easy to kind of judge or, or make it kind of either a negative act or even a, um, a neutral act being like about breeding or about proponing the, the society. Um, but at the same time, you and I was romanticizing it, but you proposed the third one about the sex erotic, and we've been talking a little bit about that, about how the erotic uh, can, can become a um, propellant towards uh, a passionate life, an outrageous life, an outrageous loving life. Um, but how, how can we change the conversation about sex in society? Like, I think a lot of times we have this kind of condemnation of any kind of... Um, this kind of very close-minded conversation about sex. Yeah. You know? So if we could talk a little bit about that, yeah. No, totally. totally. I mean, that's a great... I mean, let's take a look at it for a second. I mean, you talk very beautifully about these different... So these different sectors of society, and these sectors of society actually all live in us. These voices are all in us. And the way we like to say it is, you know, based on, you know, 25, 30 years of being deep in this conversation, is there's basically four sexual narratives out there. And, you know, I can just repeat them in about 10 seconds. You know, sex negative. We know that one. Right? That one is, you know, the church is a big proponent of that one. And sex negative means at its core, sex is a distraction. And it's in the way of pure spirit. And by the way, that's not a Western religion thing. We have this weird idea that Western religions are sex negative and Eastern religions are all sex positive. Not at all. Right? Western religions, you know, and Eastern religions almost exclusively, with a couple of notable exceptions, have a preference for some version of celibacy. But Hinduism, right, for all the Shiva-Shakti conversation, basically the ideal for many people is brahmacharya, beyond sexuality. Buddhist Tantra is almost exclusively 
beyond sexuality, right? Most of the tantric traditions are actually about actually moving beyond sexuality. There's very few actual sex-positive, deep embodiment tantric traditions in the East, right? Yeah. So, so sex-negative kind of comes in all shapes and sizes, and it doesn't discriminate, right, based on religion. Sex-negative is a major position. Like, sex was had, oh my God, that's a problem, right? In truth, so there's a, there's a deep strain like that in culture, and in the United States, it's very, very strong. You know, we're radically porn hubs, right, 80 million hits a day, and we're radically Puritan at the same time, right? And there's this enormous, profound confusion. Then you've got kind of sex positive. Sex positive is, isn't it great? Panacea, fantastic, right? But of course, we both know, all three of us know, that sex positive doesn't quite get to the depth of what we like to call the gravitas of sexuality. Sex neutral certainly doesn't. You know, with all due respect to uh, Dr. Kinsey, right, sex and butterflies, even though you might get butterflies in your stomach, Right, but researching butterflies and researching sex, not quite the same. And then, of course, there's sex sacred, which is sex sacred because it creates babies, which is a classical narrative. But when was the last time, you know, VJ, that you had sex to create a baby? Right. So, you know, and especially in a world of overpopulation. Right. So sex to create a baby is gorgeous. I've done it four times. And I have four gorgeous kids. So, so sex to create a baby is the most stunning thing in the world. But it's not where most sex is happening in the world. And we actually need to stop some of that sex from happening in the world because it's challenging right, the superstructure of reality through overpopulation. So we don't have a sexual narrative that equals our sexual experience. So I just want to let that sentence sink in on the Sunday afternoon for a second. That's a shocking sentence. We don't have a sexual narrative that's equal to our sexual experience. So we've kind of killed all the gods and goddesses except for Aphrodite, the goddess of sexuality and love. We worship at her altar, but we have no idea how to offer her libations. We don't, even, we don't even have a story, a narrative. So the new narrative we're, we're talking about in this book, Return to Eros, is sex erotic. And that's the only narrative that can actually take you beyond sexual shame. That's because what sex erotic says, and it's based on you know, an enormous depth in both the sciences, the evolutionary sciences, systems theory, complexity theory, right? It plays with you know, the edges of physics, it works with anthropology, and it works with the deepest insights of the esoteric, the interior science of all the great traditions. So it's not a fanciful kind of new age claim. Probably it's the best information we have to provide and articulate the best sexual narrative we have available today in the world. And in one sense, it's like this. It's the sexuality that arises in me, that ecstatic urgency that moves in me, that is the evolutionary eros itself that moves everything arising uniquely in me. That's some simple sentence changes everything. But it's not this pathological urge in me. It's not this violation of my social self, which I need. No, it's actually the eros of evolution. The eros of evolution itself arising in me uniquely, that is the core of sexuality. And that doesn't mean that I should have sex with everyone whenever I want to, right? Context matters, of course, right? We're not talking about unconscious evolution. We're in the move from unconscious to conscious evolution. Once I get the core shift, that the evolutionary eros arising in me, and something changes, I begin to move beyond shame. Yeah, good, good. And Christina, if you have something to say about um, specifically in regards to how we um, are able to connect in um, kind of the, in an everyday sense, I think in, in the Eastern traditions, my understanding is I, I do agree, like in my uh, kind of 
training and, and understanding of Eastern traditions. They, uh, just like in Western, it's something the union or the sexual bliss is kind of there, but it's not necessarily in the monastic traditions. They they talk about how um, you know how we we must get beyond it, how we must get to bring that sexual bliss into um, the bliss into our daily lives, but then the the sexuality becomes kind of diffuse. It becomes kind of like it's going against uh, certain uh, doctrines or vows that they take, that monastics takes, and even for lay people, you know, there's very much a structure, a structure, perhaps because it's a social element as well that uh, we want to make sure we do it consciously and, and, and mindfully if if uh, lay, lay practitioners do engage with sex. Uh, so if we talk a little bit about the consciousness, we, uh, Mark mentioned a little bit about the conscious, bringing the conscious mind and not doing it unconsciously, all this kind of thing. To yeah, I, I, one of the, one of the, the, again, the things that we do at Integral Evolutionary Tantra is we do deep, deep body practice. So once you get the, this is a, this is a, a realization, an interior knowing that you can, that you can get in with and through the body. And once you get it in with and through the body, you actually, you, you actually can have what we talk about as a total body orgasm, right? It's not just genitally confined. It's an experience of a, of, of a full-bodied orgasm that actually is, is, a, is this deeply lived experience that actually trans, transposes onto all of reality, right? It, it's, it's actually once you experience it within, within your, your deep cells, you actually, when you go to eat an orange, when you go to have a conversation, when you... When you, when you sit down to listen to music, when all the different things that you can do, it, you actually have a full, there's a full kind of arousal, there's a full opening, a full blossoming of your being that actually connects with all of source. It's a profound embodied, I keep going back to the body, that's my, my kind of specialty, but the, 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 it, it, it's a profound knowing. And from there, the game changes. I'll just say that. Yeah. So I think it's true, true. I mean, I think we're all grounded in our sensation, our body experiences that to kind of be in the idea of being disembodied or the idea of kind of disconnecting is so such a pathology that many, many spiritual traditions, I think, fall into a trap that many spiritual traditions fall into that uh, they somehow propose some kind of heaven that is uh, abstract or beyond the body that after death. And that then we're chasing after something that's not in the here and now, you know? So, uh, you know, the importance of grounding our experiences in what we can uh, feel and what we can experience instead of these uh, kind of sometimes at terms abstract ideas. Here's, here's a wild thing. I mean, that's absolutely true. And, and it, in the end, it begins with the body and it doesn't end with the body. Yeah. Paradoxically, here's a crazy paradox. Right? And paradox, of course, is a wonderful quality. Paradox is this quality of knowing, the deepest quality. And actually, in, in, in one book that was written the first century before the Common Era, they talk about not there not being five senses, but 12 senses. And the 12th quality of sense perception is knowing the truth of paradox. So here's a, a wildly beautiful paradox. When you enter deeply into the body, into the here and now embodiment, through that embodiment, you actually get, right, through that being fully present in the infinity of the now, you actually move through the body 
actually this timeless time, this placeless place. The body can actually take you into an we're working on a new book on the different kinds of sexuality. One of them is mystical sexing. And mystical sexing, and it's only one of seven major kinds of sexuality, but mystical sexing means you move so deeply into the body that you go all the way through the body into this vast expanse in which sexing becomes a form, probably the most potent form, of meditation itself. And every great realization you can have in meditating, you can actually have in sexing. So paradoxically, the boundary between body and non-body is a wrong boundary. It was made by the materialists. The body is porous. The body is open. Right? The body is so much more than a materialist, reductive... Right? The body is magic. It's alive. And it is a portal, right, both to the interiors. The body is a portal to inner space. Right? And the body is a portal to the vast, spacious expanse. So the body is, is, is anything but just the body. Right? The body is, is, you know... You remember that when we were kids, we, we watched, we were like, you know, 10 and 11 and 12. We would watch always the reruns of The Sound of Music. I don't know if you did that. I did. Right? So in The Sound of Music, there's this line where they're singing in the hills of Austria, and they go, you know, the hills are alive. You know, ah! Right? So the body's alive. Right? The body is a living, breathing, mystical, magical, gorgeous organism. Besides being, you know, complexly gorgeous beyond what exponential supercomputers could manifest. I'm just trying to figure out mitosis and meiosis. And when you get home tonight, you know, wherever you are in Brooklyn, just open up mitosis and meiosis and try and work that out. Have your mind just blowing to high hell in a beautiful way. And the body's stunning. I mean, as we're talking right now, right, I mean, there's VJ with 100 trillion cells and unique complementarity allured to each other, right, loving each other open in every second in a way that never happened to any being that ever was, is, or will be, other than reality having a VJ experience. I mean, hello? Yeah. Uh, good morning, Vietnam. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think that definitely needs to be underlined, because I think that a lot of times we think about our experiences in our body as being the boundaries of our skin. And, and as you were saying, I think from my understanding of what you were saying, is that those, the pores are open, that we're connected to this this immersed experience of the of the of the world that there's not like, oh, there's me and there's the, you know, some imaginary boundary we put at, a, at the edges of our hand or the edges of our, our extremities or our bodies that we're like, oh, that's where I end and this is where the rest of the outside world begins. And it's so important to be able to underline and say that we're immersed, we're somewhere in this nexus of reality that um, that the, the love and the, uh, the impulse flows through us. So, yes. yeah, I think I yes. understand, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. And that's, that's, actually, that's actually what's true, right? We are so much more than a skin encapsulated ego, right? We're so much more, right? The body is, right? The body is, I mean, you know, the body's a portal. You know, if, if you'd want to be like crazily, you know, mystical in the secret tradition, and you'd want to, we'd want to date ourselves enormously, this will take us back to childhood. I don't know. I don't know how old you are, brother. Right? But if, maybe you go back. Let me guess. And you were about five. Right? Let's say Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. But it's got enough reruns. You might have caught it along the way. Remember Raiders of the Lost Ark? What's the Ark? The Ark is the Ark of the Covenant. Right? It's the Ark of the Covenant, and in the Temple in Jerusalem. What, what's that about? So the Ark is the body. The Ark is a portal. Right? The Ark is the body is 
is, right, not just the body electric, not just the body sacred, but the body is this enormous temple, right, of just unparalleled, you know, computer, supercomputer-like complexity and brilliance, right, and, right, an incredibly sense of being held and nourished right, by a body that's taking care of me and literally, like, loving me madly open in every second and, you know, with, you know, millions of miles of nerve cable. I mean, just the story goes on and on. And at the same time, right, the body is the portal to reality pleasuring me. And my body is designed for pleasure, which tells me that the universe is not just friendly. Einstein was asking the wrong question. The universe intends me. The universe desires me. The universe affirms my dignity because pleasure is the affirmation of human dignity. Yeah, good, good, yeah. Hey, Christina? I'm just I'm I'm just listening in the ah pleasure 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 yes yes um, affirming the dignity of who we are um, sorry I kind of just got swept away yeah I was also like kind of listening and kind of just the beauty of the the poetry of the moment was like very very much uh, capturing yeah. So we can move to uh, now. We're at. Uh, we have a few more. We have like about. We're a little bit over halfway through. Uh, a little bit twenty more minutes or so. Um, why don't we go a little bit more personal about how in your own life stories, what has moved you, what has uh, propelled you forward, um, how you're able to embody, how you're able to practice this in uh, uh, the what aesthetic makes you live life fuller and richer and more meaningful. How's how's that grown in your own life? I'll go first. Um, yeah, well, I, um, hmm. the, what sort of sent me on my journey was a, a kind of um, radical experience I had in my late 20s, early 30s. I was a model in New York City and going about my business and working and having a great time. And um, I started having these trigger memories. Um, of of some kind of <clears throat> abuse, some sexual abuse from a family member um, that were quite shocking and and disturbing, and it was like snippets of things. They were just it was like a, pieces of a movie, or I would smell things, or very bizarre. And um, I started to go into you know try to find ways to actually heal this part of myself and, and the deeper I went I realized actually that something had happened to me and um, so my exploration began with actually how do you heal an emotional trauma um, you know I went to a traditional uh, psychotherapist for many years and you know I could talk about it all the time you know talk about it rather deeply but I couldn't actually it, the, the issue wouldn't resolve and I went to the Barbara Brennan School of Healing, which, um, you know, gave me a deep sort of template around how energy and how um, illness manifests and how different traumas and things are held in, your, in the field, in our energy field. And then I went on to um, study with a man named Dr. Paracas, who was a student of Wilhelm Reich. And Reich was a student of uh, Freud. But Reich went ahead and sort of integrated... Um, he took the Freudian concepts, but then brought the body into um, <clears throat> into the whole picture, the mind, body, and spirit, and he created what's now called the somatic movement. And so I studied with Dr. Paracas, um, 
uh, at the Institute for five years and became a, a, um, a teacher at the Institute. And in, this, in that work, what I, 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 what I recaptured and rediscovered is, the, is my own life energy, that sexual energy and life energy are one and the same. I think that was one of the most profound realizations that I, that I made. And the processes and practices, and I also did some deep, deep um, work with shamans um, throughout South America, and that kind of sent me on a journey to uh, look at healers all over the world and kind of try to start to understand what is healing, how do we heal, what needs to transpire in order for healing to happen. Is there, are there things cross-culturally that, that, um, you know, that was my anthropology background, you know, that, that are similar between cultures. And so at the end of the day, all of this tracing and trotting around the, the, the world in search of healing became a search, obviously, for my own healing. And um, I, I, I made my way through it. What, what Carl Jung calls the path of the wounded healer, right, as you go through that process, on the other side, you sometimes you have a, a, an experience so profound and so transformative that you actually decide to turn around and, and make that your work in your life. So that's kind of where I am today. And, and um, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so yes, much. And then, yeah. and, then I, 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 and then I met Mark. I met Mark when I was, I met Mark about seven years ago. And, um, it was a workshop. It was a workshop called "A Journey to Love," and um, it was a four-day workshop up in upstate New York. And I, um, the sort of the second day, he was teaching. Right, he has a what I've come to know as a transmission from his lineage, um, his Kabbalistic lineage. And I had a full-bodied um, Shakti uh, uh, awakening a full-body kundalini awakening. And um, I thought that was rather shocking, and I went up to him afterward. It, it went on for about a half an hour, and um, I couldn't stop it. Um, and I, what it was doing was clearing out all, you know, traumas and, and clearing out blockages in my body. And I went up to him after the, the next morning. I heard that night ask him to be your teacher, and um, the next morning, I, I, I did so, and I've been studying with him, and now am partnered with him, and had the great, amazing honor to work with him on A Return to Earth. And now our next book, which Mark um, referred to, is called Sexually Incorrect, A Radically Awake, Alive uh, Guide to the Sexual. So I feel incredibly blessed to have met Mark, and just incredibly blessed to have gone through all of the, the challenges. Um, you know, they say, you know, your biggest wound becomes your biggest gift. And there were many times when I, you know, couldn't find my way through. And, and I've come out the other side and, and know that to be true. Yeah, so, thank you. Thank yeah. You. Thank you. Yeah, I know my own story, like, um, you know, growing up, it was always like there's some confusion about this, um, the spiritual and spirituality and God and, and what it means to be human. And during, uh, as I started to begin the journey towards these kind of spiritual topics and incubating with manifestation, uh, I started to get this feeling like, you know, like of an impulse that I had a mission or like a, a, the metaphor sometimes I think about is the flown arrow that something triggered me in the beginning that this, 
desire or impulse triggered me in the beginning, and now I'm continuing towards that target, but understanding what is that target, how can I uh, assess my own life and where am I heading towards is so important. So I'll let Mark go on, and then I'll, I'll fill in a little bit. No, beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. So thank, thank you, KK, for that, that, that gorgeous story. And let me just say something um, with your permission, um, BJ, about yeah. Christina. Christina is a, a brilliant, you know, embodied teacher, and, and it's just a, just a gift, you know, and her particular work. You know, I, I work more in what you might call the subtle realms. And I use the subtle realms not as an English word subtle, but kind of borrowing from the Hindu tradition, which talks about the gross, which is the physical realm, the causal, which is kind of pure spirit meditative, and the subtle, which is, you might call it the energetic realm, like, you know, the kind of the energy fields that work in the body. So I work both as a kind of public intellectual, as a, a thinker, whatever that means. You know, so, you know, I, I, I'm the president of a, a fabulous think tank with 50 or 60 kind of leading-edge thinkers in the world. And we are just, you kind of get a sense of it. You'll, you'll completely love it, DJ. These are kind of some of the best people in the world in medicine, you know, in business, you know, ranging from CEOs to, you know, cardiologists who are heads of their departments to, you know, the leading trauma therapists in the world. And we're trying to actually articulate what is the new world story. Right? In other words, after all the deconstruction, what do we know? If you bring together the best wisdom right, of the pre-modern, right, the traditional period, and the best wisdom of modernity, and the best wisdom of post-modernity, put it all together, right, knock out the shadows of each one of those, right, and articulate you know, a new Renaissance vision. I mean, think about da Vinci, right, you know, sitting there in Florence, Right, you know, and then his friends in Venice. You know, the Black Death has just swept through Europe. And you can't go to every village in Europe and heal the Black Death. And you're faced with incalculable suffering, and yet you feel something new. You feel something emergent. You feel a new possibility. Right? And, and that was modernity. And da Vinci and his friends and his cohorts, like, told a new story. They told a new story about knowledge, a new story about information. A new story about the relationship between the human being and spirit. A new story about eros. A new story about about spirit. And in that new story became the story of modernity. You know, and then along came postmodernity and said, "Yo, man, hello, Foucault, Derrida, want to deconstruct that shit, man? Right, right. And we got to deconstruct that whole story. And it did, right. But what it did is it left us without a story. It left us without a a shared framework, right, from which which to live and act and play and be and transform the world. And the single biggest threat, the single biggest existential threat in the world today, right, is not a rogue terrorist bomb, well, that's real, and it's not climate change, although that's that's real, and it's not fishing the seas, you know, and although that's real, and it's not the methane gas under the tundras in Siberia, although that's real, right, and it's not the growing, you know, split between the haves and the haves not, so although that's real, but the biggest threat today, I don't have a shared story. We live in a world in which everyone's connected, as it were, right, you know, vis-a-vis Facebook, but no one's face-to-face, right? There's no shared vision. There's no shared story. And by story, I don't mean metaphoric New Age narrative, you know, blank that. I mean, like, the best story that we can tell based on the best integrations of the sciences, the interior sciences, right, in all the realms of knowledge. Right? That Renaissance project, we've kind of forgotten. And so what we're engaging in the think tank is that Renaissance project. And sexuality is, of course, just one dimension of it, right? But it's a critical dimension. We can't bypass the sexual. 
Right? When we bypass protection, we get a disaster. And maybe just last second, I'll just give you a scene for a second, just so you'll kind of get, you know, just ha- ha- why this is so important. So you remember the second debate, the second presidential debate, which was Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, and it was the second debate. They were like, um, this wasn't this was not long ago, right? So just you know, a little while ago, 2016. I was sitting in um, the Mill Valley, actually, in California, and, you know, KK and I and a bunch of people were watching the debate, and it was just kind of shocking. It was right after the Access Hollywood tape. So you've got this whole kind of Trump sexuality kind of grossness right in the space, which is tragic. It's this tragic sense. But again, there's no formal process. There's no actual accusation, evidence checking. There's just this pall, right, this kind of, you know, and then on the other hand, you've got Hillary Clinton, Right. So you've got Hillary and Bill on stage. And you've got Melania and Trump. So just let's look at the scene for a second, not from a political perspective, but from a kind of spiritual, sexual perspective. You've got Melania and Trump on the stage where Melania is obviously it's not based on the depth of their shared soul vision. But Melania is a trophy wife. Right. You've got Trump who's got his act as Hollywood. Right. Grab them by the, you know, et cetera. Right. But of course, you've got the deeper problem, which is Trump's actually telling the truth. Right. That actually there's a complexity post feminism. Right. In the sense that, you know, there is this strange trade of power and sexuality. And this, of course, anticipates the Me Too movement. Then you've got Hillary Clinton. Clearly, Hillary and Bell aren't together based on the, their past and sexuality. Right. So you got Bill and, and, you know, you got four people brought on by the Trump campaign who've all accused Bill of, of various ranges from Juanita Broderick, who's accused him of rape. Right, to sexual harassment accusations, but none of those checked, none of them validated, no, no actual due process happened in any of those either. So it's complicated on both sides. Then, of course, you've got Huma Abedin right there, you know, you know, who's kind of reputed Vanity Fair, et cetera, to have a relationship with Hillary. Right now, none of this, none, I, we don't care whether any of this is true or not true. That's not our point. And this is not a pro-Trump or pro-Clinton point. It's got nothing to do with that. The point is, look at this from the perspective of, imagine you had a 15-year-old kid you were trying to share with them something about sexuality, right? And then, of course, you've got, you know, Huma Abedin, Anthony Weiner, right, who's kind of sexting someplace and is now in prison just to add to the scene. So all of this is happening, VJ, at the second debate. That's yeah, if this is the one at the town hall, right? There's, also, there's a town hall one where he was, like, lurking in the background. It, it was really right. disturbing. That's, 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 right. that's right. It was disturbing, right? It was just, I really was triggered by that. Like, That's right, totally. Right? Yeah. That's, that's right. On top of all that, you've got him stalking her on the stage, right? So, I mean, all of this is happening, though. And if you watch the commentary, BJ, yeah. get the clip. No one talks about any of this. Yeah, it took a little yeah. while for people to process that, for the memes to start coming out and the, and the videos to start coming out that he was like, he seemed like a sexual predator, you know, <laughs> like right, the way he right. was. But, but, but he's a sexual predator, he seems like, and, and yet, and yet, and yet the whole thing is unclear, right? You know, mm. and, others, and, and then there's, of course, but then there's Bill. Who's complicated? Yeah. And Hillary's complicated with whom, and whom is complicated with Anthony, and Melania is complicated, right? In other words, so it's not just, in other words, what we could focus in on Trump, who's clearly in disastrous on a, a thousand different levels, right? You know, but that's not, that would be to miss the point. In a certain sense, if I can say the liberal world has made Trump like we made Osama bin Laden. Yeah. If only we got rid of him, all our problems would be solved. That's not true. Yeah. Right? And Trump is symptomatic, and th- th- that mistake. Right, the failure of the liberal world to articulate a compelling vision, right, of meaning, right? And, and the liberal world is very good at being against things, 
right? And Trump's really easy to be against, let's face it, right? Right? But actually, you can't you can't articulate a compelling vision based on what you're against. You got to be for something, right? You got to be for right a positive vision of meaning. Right? You've got to have actually a narrative of power, a narrative of identity, a narrative of sexuality, all of which right has liberals has tragically failed to articulate, right? And so it's not about liberal conservative, right? The conservative world, the neocon world, you know, is either secular or rooted in a regressive you know, fundamentalist evangelical alliance, right? And the liberal world, where it's all about what we don't know, but has forgot to articulate a reconstructive project of what we do know, right? And so the work we're doing on sexuality is part of a larger vision of what does return to Eros mean? What's the new world vision in which sexuality is an expression of this larger erotic vision? Okay, that was a mouthful. Yeah, it seems like we're starting to move to a place where we're not just caught up in the tragic, uh, and the pre-tragic, where we're constantly in the book, yeah. it talks a little bit about we're moving towards the post-tragic. We're able to integrate in our healthy perspectives or a whole perspective of sexuality. Yes. So we're not just always caught up in this tragic aspects. Yeah, exactly. And, and just to, just to highlight that distinction for for the listeners, so Vijay, with your permission, yeah, and I'll turn it to KK. So in the very in the introduction to the book, we have this distinction between the pre-tragic, the tragic, and the post-tragic, right? So pre-tragic is when everything's clear. So sex negative and all the great religions was clear. Sex is a problem. But the sexual revolution was also pre-tragic. So it was clear. Sex is just good. Have a lot of sex. And that didn't, and those are both pre-tragic because they say everything's clear. Then tragic is we've got no distinctions around sexuality. It's a mess. Is it a hookup culture or is it a rape culture? We're not sure. Right? And the same fraternity... Right? There's hookup culture, rape culture. They're living in the same person side by side, and it's completely confused. What is consent? What's not consent? Right? Confused. Right? Confused. Me Too movement. Right? Me Too movement. Complete confusion around desire. A complete problematizing of male desire. A demonizing of male desire. Right? And then a disowning of feminine desire. Right? No feminine desire anyplace. Oh, God forbid. So it's splitting off of feminine desire. It's complicated Me Too. Right, a legitimate, powerful, important movement that we all stand with. We're all in favor of Me Too, and yet there's these. You talk to anybody behind the scenes, and everyone will tell you, right? Anyone from conservative to liberal, right, to feminist, Me Too is also disturbing. Yeah, disturbing. Right, it's disturbing, and no one. You're not quite allowed to say that out loud, right? And so that's the tragic. And we need to move as you to post-tragic. Post-tragic is wow. What's a? Well, let's reclaim a sexual narrative. Let's reclaim feminine desire. Let's reclaim, right, the beauty of the masculine. Let's stop demonizing men, right? Men are problematic. So are women. Men and women both have shadow. And let's not make women are good, men are bad. I don't think so, right? I mean, you know, I, you know, just, you know, I don't know, just take a look at the opening scene of, I don't know, let's date ourselves in movies 20 years ago. Um, Tom Hanks, Saving Private Ryan, and see thousands of men, you know, storming the beach at Normandy, getting mowed down giving up their lives to ensure a democratic world. I don't think we want to demonize men, right? Men and women are both beautiful, and they both have shadow, right? And let's get over the gender wars, right? And let's go into a post-tragic place where we have a new vision of what it means to love each other, what it means to to be sexual with each other, what it means to, right? So that's what we need to do. And that's what Christine and I are trying to stand for, and I'm sure you are, VJ, in your life, and and lots of listeners are, is can we actually, right, right, we got to articulate the new world now. Right? We got to actually reclaim right, our, our authority and begin to articulate a new vision and right? a new narrative of identity, of 
power, right, of, of spirituality, of sexuality. And we've got to return to Eros. We've got to reclaim Eros in its broadest sense. And that is the imperative, and that the, the failure of Eros, and the failure of a shared universe story is the greatest existential threat that, that threatens us in the world today. And it's ours to do. Right? No one else is going to do it. It's completely ours to do. Yeah, good, good. Thank you. And uh, I think that uh, just to um, move, uh, as we start to wrap up, I just want to get a sense of, you mentioned Saving Prior Ryan and how these kind of movies uh, and these kind of cinemas that are part of our shared experience kind of inform our perception of reality, these all cinema and art in general. So if uh, we can talk a little bit about what uh, what's coming up for you as far as art, music, literature that you know, propels this narrative forward, that kind of brings us to that healthy spaces, that shows a vision of humanity, perhaps as a consumer you might be uh, uh, touching base with and thinking about what have you been seeing that actually kind of advances something in your in your perception. So if Christine wants to yeah, begin. Beautiful. Yeah, beautiful, Christina, right? Yeah. Beautiful, right? I mean, I mean, you know, literature, like, I'd say two things, and, and Christina will give us maybe a closing, a closing wisdom or a blessing or... Yeah. Transmission, but you know, I'd say just first in terms of literature, I can't help but saying, "Hello, read Return to Eros." Yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, Return to Eros is a book, and don't don't try and read it in one sitting, friends. Just have it by your bedside. Read a couple of pages a night, right? And you know, we worked over you know every word of it. It's it's a, it's a big book. It's not a pop book. It's not a new agey quick seven steps to, right? But it is it is a new Bible of a new vision of a new Eros. Right and and read it carefully. Challenge it. Engage us. You know our emails are there. Right, let's have this conversation together. Let's return to Eros. So in terms of a piece of literature, let's start reading again. All right. Let's start reading and let's stop looking at little three minute clips and think we know something. Right. And let's go. Let's go. Let, you know the opposite of the holy is not the superficial. Right? The opposite of the holy is not the unholy. The opposite of the holy, excuse me, is the superficial. Let's go for depth. But that's just one in terms of literature. Right. And I think you know we also need to make new movies. We need to make new movies that are gorgeous, that are that are holy. We need to create new cinema, right, and new art, you know, and, and that, 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 that's what the whole story is about. And so we just, we, just, we just welcome everyone into the conversation, and let's start with Return to Eros, and, and Vijay, come out and visit us in California, or we'll see you in a, one of our Manhattan events. Thank you. Never Revolutionary Tantra, and let's, uh, and let's drink some good wine. Thank you, thank you. And Christina, you have a final comment? There's there's not much else to say other than you know let's it actually you know it, it takes all of us to do it together and uh, again like Mark said you know we're we're open for conversation and community and coming together and returning to Eros um, all, all together. Thank you, thank you so much, guys. So this has been What Is Love Show and Ready for Brooklyn. Uh, Thursdays at 9 a.m. is my normal show. Um, to power show so hope to see you hope to have you listen 